my life I has to fight All's my life I Hard times like yeah Bad trips like yeah Nazareth I'm f***ed up homie you f***ed up But if God got us then we gon' be alright Hey everybody, this is Maria and Susie and we are here talking today about our top books, our favorite books. First, we got to give a few real world updates and talk about actually some things from our past episodes. So first of all, Susie, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing? Well, I have contracted COVID. So. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> I mean, sorry. yeah, you know. Like I've said, you know, in some ways, I'm kind of glad just to get it over with so I don't have to run and live in fear anymore. But I also don't like being sick and I hate missing work. But that's a whole other conversation. I'm I'm as well as can be expected. Thank you for asking. That's what I should say. Before we get started talking about books we like, I wanted to give us an update an update on one of the topics that Susie covered so nicely in our last episode regarding the don't say gay bill and a number of other really unusual decisions around education that Florida has recently made. The update is, first of all, we already know that Florida was trying to, the, the, the governor and um, his committee They were trying to find books that meet the best, B-E-S-T, standards. They do not use Common Core standards. They created their own set of standards that they were going to follow, and they were looking for math-related B-E-S-T standards. Some of the criterion, criteria were that there cannot be any woke content. They actually passed a bill that was about no woke content. No critical race theory, no social emotional learning. They specifically said no indoctrination. So that is part of why the Don't Say Gay Bill was such a big topic because that falls into the indoctrination category, according to what Florida has said. Part of the reason why that's an issue is just because we know that the governor, Ron DeSantis, said that the focus should be on getting the right answer. That's what math was about, according to him. Problematic, because we know that coping skills are absolutely necessary to learn math. And um, especially in a COVID age where kids have gone for several years without having uh, opportunities to practice their coping strategies, it's really important to have those things embedded in the curriculum. Regardless, A Sympathist article recently written uh, mentioned that Accelerate, which was the top candidate that Florida passed for K-5 curriculum, was not actually the only curriculum that had been approved, as we previously thought. They said, oh, you're wrong, because there were several sub-curricula that had been picked by McGraw-Hill and Savas Learning that could be used for three through five. The reason why that absolutely makes no sense is because nobody, no school district worth its salt, would pick one curriculum that goes K-5 
K through two, and then another one that goes three through five. So essentially, Accelerate is still the only curriculum that goes K through five. However, they have added nine new curricula to the list because they, I think, got a lot of pushback and decided that they were going to loosen the restrictions a little bit. What are your thoughts on this, Susie? Well, I think you pretty much covered everything I was thinking about that. I, I'm still stuck on that whole no indoctrination thing and isn't not talking about those things also indoctrination. Yeah, I think it's weird to not discuss your coping skills or strategies on how to persevere or to de-escalate when you're feeling yourself get frustrated with something or when you're feeling anxiety for a test. That's what social emotional learning is. And I, I don't understand how that's indoctrination. Yeah. And you also said that he said that math is about getting the right answer. And I wholly disagree. Like math is about the process to the answer. And it's about problem solving and it's like exercising a part of your brain that's going to help you problem solve in life in general, in all kinds of arenas, not just solving a math problem. So you have to really practice problem solving in math. And to what you just said, it's frustrating sometimes when you don't get the right answer and you have to have all those coping strategies, coping skills. So Florida, we're still giving you the side eye. Mm-hmm. Adding nine curricula or nine additional books does not make us like you anymore. Anyway, now that that's out of the way, let's get started. Susie's going to start us off with books we like. And these are going to be books that are social justice oriented, that have some kind of impact on education. They may not be about education, but they can be useful in educational spaces. Susie, why don't you tell us your first pick? Okay, my first pick is a nonfiction. I'm already lying. My first pick is fiction. It's a fiction book for adults. Anyone who wants to understand what general generational trauma is should read Homegoing by Yaa Jossi. Y-A-A-G-Y-A-S-I. Yaa Jossi. Homegoing. This book is about two half-sisters in Ghana. One is born into a wealthy family and one is born into um, a family headed to North America in the slave trade. And it follows their paths all the way through multiple, multiple generations. And each chapter is about a different person in that family. So I love this book because it really we, we've all heard about generational trauma, but don't, under, especially if you're a white woman like myself whose family generationally has thrived in school, generational trauma around school or anything isn't something that we discuss or talk about. And this book was really eye opening in that how it is passed down generation after generation after generation and compounding each generation. I've sent Yag Yassi's book, um, Homegoing, to a family member because I'm just so fascinated by the idea of the generational impact. And sometimes it can be generational trauma, but it's just this trickle down or domino effect that happens in so many of our lives. And we think that we have this like independent journey, mm -hmm. but the reality is that so much of our experience is predetermined um, by the experience of our ancestors. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that we carry them with us wherever we go. Yeah. And I think that as a black woman, when I think about systemic oppression or um, things that I'm affected by in the system, understanding how the people who came before me navigated that, it's mm-hmm. almost like a miracle when I hear some of the stories that they the, the things they were able to acquire and accomplish, you know, and life is hard enough as it is in a very modern world. And I don't know what it would have been like for someone in a society that was much, much more limiting. Yeah, that makes me think about understanding also Black excellence and how when you read the book, all of, in this book particularly, when you read about all of the things that each side of the family has been through and how they made it through successfully in spite of all of the things put in front of them. I'm trying not to give any spoilers. Then you like, it's in spite of not because of it's not because they were given things. It's in spite of things that were taken away. So this idea that black excellence is real and that when you have black children in your class, you need to think that they're excellent first before you think anything else. Mm, mm-hmm. I like that. Thank you, Susie. You're welcome. What's your first book? My first book is Coaching for Equity by Elena Aguilar. Mm, good one. I love, love, love this book. It really changed uh, the way that I think about instructional leadership and the way that I think about being someone that is committed to equity, equity, racial equity, and centering it in my practice, as well as encouraging others to center it in their practices. Practices. Sorry, I can't talk today. <laughs> I like it because it provides resources, scenarios, step-by-step guides on how to initiate and sustain equity dialogue with people who are in a wide range of their journeys as far as equity goes. And that's important because as a Black woman working in education, my vernacular, my language, my ability to discuss some of these concepts, it's very deeply knitted into the fiber of my identity and goes well beyond the classroom. Whereas for other people, it's something that they had to really intentionally seek out because it wasn't something that ever impacted their identity in any capacity. Um, And so I think like for someone like me, um, I'm constantly feeling like I'm waiting for white teachers, you know, just waiting for them to catch up. And I feel often limited or frustrated by how um, primitive, (laughs) for lack of better Mm -hmm. term, some of our conversations are, you know, really, really just barely scratching the surface. And every time you have this conversation, it's like starting all over because every topic, it's like the first time they've talked about it. And that can become really mind numbing and and frustrating. And it can cause people like me to lash out or completely Mm -hmm. shut down. Um, So having a book like that has been helpful because it affirms my perspective and also gives me tips on how to be patient with those who are in a very different place in their journey 
as mm-hmm. well as making sure that we center equity and we center students, we center our community at all times, right? So holding each other accountable and, and keeping best practice in mind while still moving this work forward because starting these conversations over and over and over and over every single year, it just is like not enough. And I know white fragility is definitely a thing, so it can be difficult to have conversations with white educators because there are always a lot of tears and a lot of like making it about themselves. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so does she touch on what if you're the only one in the school that's equity focused? Mm-hmm. From my experience, she doesn't necessarily talk about it in like school relationship or like building sense. She talks about it from what I remember more relationship with the other person that you're or the either the person or the group that you're trying to work with. I guess a school would be considered a group, huh? But it could also just be your team, right? Yeah. When Elena Aguilar talk, <clears throat> excuse me, talks about it, she she's talking about it from a coaching perspective. She does express a number of times when she has come to like school buildings or done district leadership where it's been really frustrating because she takes a lot of things personally. You know, she gets really frustrated that people aren't listening or that, you know, kind of like we said, they're making it about themselves. And um, one of the biggest tips she gives is like, they're telling you something, some need that they have is not being met, which is why they're behaving like that. Mm-hmm. So first identify what the need is, find a way to like fill that void. And that way they'll feel a little safer to explore some of those conversations with you. Got it. Okay, cool. So she's kind of running on the assumption that you have to push it forward. The equity focused person is pushing it forward with different strategies pushing it forward and also recognizing the humanity of the people that you're working with. Yes. Because even when people have good intentions, we know that, um, you know, people are still fragile and they're sensitive and they take things hardly or hardly. I don't know if that's a word, but they, they, they get hurt because they have good intentions. And sometimes people feel like that's enough having good intentions. We know that's not enough. Right. But Showing them that there has to be more is a journey. Yeah. Susie, what's your next book? My next book is nonfiction. It is Mm. called Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America by Michael Eric Dyson. Mm. Um, If you ever get the chance to hear Michael Eric Dyson speak somewhere, I highly, highly recommend going because He is a pastor. He's a dynamic speaker. And he has that talent. You know, when you talk about race, how you can like say something so important and powerful that makes the whole group gasp kind of, but then you say something funny and then everybody's laughing. He's got this balance of kind of dropping knowledge and then calming you down so you're ready for the next bit to get dropped. So he's very, very, very amazing to listen to. This is basically his conversation that he would, 
well, I guess it's not a conversation. It's a sermon. So he's preaching. He's lecturing on how white people need to listen to people of color and how the tears that they, that we cannot stop are just like the tears of constantly being, trying to be taken down. Like we were talking about black excellence in another book, like just trying to be taken down and kind of like getting rid of or pushing to the side and all, there's so many statistics in here about school, about prison, about, um, housing, all kinds of things. And it's basically an explanation of why we can't stop pushing forward and fighting for equity. And some of the people who have, you know how, like when you get the book, there's quotes from other people, Mm -hmm. quotes on the book about how great his book is are Barack Obama, Toni Morrison, and Stephen King. I'm wondering if that's the Stephen King that writes the scary things. Mm -hmm. And on the inside quote, how we can make it through the long night of despair to the bright day of hope, Michael Eric Dyson. So this, I picked this book because this is great for any white person to read who wants to understand the anger and the fear and the stress and frustration in communities of color. This will answer a lot of questions without asking people questions. You can get them here. Tears we cannot stop. Okay. You know, I'm actually surprised that Barack Obama gave positive feedback because Michael Eric Dyson is not very nice to Barack Obama. So, you know, that's just a thing. But uh, hey, he said, it must be that good. <laughs> it is, yeah. And Barack Obama said, everybody who speaks after Michael Eric Dyson pales in comparison. Hmm. That is true. He's so great. He used to come to Seattle a lot, and I should have he, listened yeah. to him while I had the chance. Maybe he'll come again sometime. Maybe. I've seen him here and uh, at a conference. Oh, cool. Thanks for that, Susie. You're welcome. What's your next book? My next book is called Demystifying Disability. What to Know, What to Say, and How to Be an Ally. It's by Emily Ladeau. I was introduced to this book through a mini course I took at the University of Washington called Disability Justice. And it was a book Mm -hmm. that a lot of the educators were familiar with or had been talking about. And I'd never seen or heard this book. So I, I was very curious about it. And one of the things that I remember discussing through the course Uh, was the lack of intersectionality between so many other social justice movements that are happening, right? Like when we think about Black Lives Matter, there are no prominent disabled people. When we think about so many other movements, I'm blanking out right now, trans rights movement, we don't see any disabled people representing, like it's almost as if in that world, we would think none, no people are disabled or have disabilities. Mm-hmm. And we know that that's not true. And so demystifying disability, understanding that these are individuals with minds and hearts, ambitions and goals, and really understanding and getting clarity around language and, and ways to describe and, and talk about the disabled community. I think it's really important. Um, this book is just kind of a tipping, like just to kind of get things going for me. I'm very curious to learn more. So it's definitely a journey. 
<clears throat> but I think that it's a good starting point to at least understand the perspective that so many people have um, regarding just being on the periphery, not ever being at the center of anything or not ever being centered in, mm -hmm. in dominant communities. And it doesn't happen often that I, a Black woman, <clears throat> am considered a privileged person. But I was very humbled as I've been reading this book, thinking about all of the privileges that I have. I'm physically not disabled and, and mentally, I don't have any cognitive disabilities. Um, and so I don't have to worry about like how I'm gonna get into a building or how I'm gonna get into work. And I don't have to worry about like, okay, staring at the screen for too long. You know, like one of my um, instructors in the program she got into a major car accident several years ago that made it impossible for her to look at computer screens for extended periods of time. Hmm. Come COVID, what do you do? Like, how oh. do you do your job, right? Yeah. Um, and, and what kind of accommodations do you have the right to? And, and how difficult is it to just do the basics? So like I said, there are so many things that we take advantage or take for granted. And I really have enjoyed reading this. It's a light read. Cool. Is it's for teachers or like just it's, um it's for anybody. It's not necessarily thanks for making that connection actually. How does that connect to education? I it's not necessarily a book for teachers, okay. but I think that you'll be hard pressed to find a classroom where there's no student that has a disability. And I think that for us as teachers, it's time to center all of our students in our planning, in our in the learning that they do, and stop acting like, oh, well, this group of students I don't have to worry about because they have IEPs, or this student has a 504 plan. I don't need to worry about this child, right? Like, these are all our students, and they all need to be included in this process, and they need to know that they are just as valuable in this community, and we see them and we appreciate them just as they are. Yeah, that was going to be my follow-up question was, what does the author say about, because you know, the IEP process is long and you still have to teach and make sure your students are successful, whether they have a 504 or an IEP or not. Mm -hmm. And does it address that whole system? Not, not specifically, not that I've seen. I'm not done with the book yet. So there still may be mm -hmm. a section on that. Um, but this is very general, just kind of talking about disability in general. And I'm making that connection because I'm yeah. thinking a lot of my own practice and reflecting on ways that I can support all of my students because that's a priority to me. But that's not explicitly discussed. No. Do you think this book would also be good for parents of children with disabilities? I don't know. I think that um, if you are a parent with uh, a child who has disabilities, mm -hmm. that's a good question. I'm not sure. I, I The reason I why I say I'm not sure is because I'm, I'm thinking that you probably would have as a parent some information already and, and you would have some strong opinions about people and the way they see your child, right? And right. this book is for people who have not had in-depth conversations or experiences with people who are disabled uh, and are really not aware of how the world treats them. I see. Okay. 
versus how they see themselves. Okay, understood. But it could be because some some parents who have disabled children are not always accepting of the reality of whatever their children are experiencing or need support with. Um, so it could be helpful, but I, I would love for teachers in gen ed settings to have access to this book because it's not a heavy read and it definitely makes you think. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. What's your book, Susie? Okay, my last book is a book that I picked for teachers in intermediate elementary grades that they could use as a read aloud. Mm. And it's called, it's a novel. It's called Weed Flower, and it's by Cynthia Kadahata, K-A-D-O-H-A-T-A. I've read this book a number of times with students, and I like this book because it is about a family who had a farm in, I want to say... I'm not going to say because I don't remember, but they had a farm and they got sent to a Japanese prison camp and it's about their life there and things that happened. And the camp was built on indigenous land. So it's also about how that community was impacted by the prison. So there's a whole lot of complex things happening in this book. Lots of great conversations to be had about land rights, immigration, citizenship, love, self-confidence, identity, all kinds of things. Friendship. That book sounds awesome. And it definitely sounds like something I would want to introduce to my students because it's age appropriate for them. Susie, can you tell, um, is it something that in the past you have done like a book study on or like how have you found ways to make the context rich and meaningful for students that don't necessarily have a strong historical context? So the book does a really good job of kind of laying out the historical context. And there are, I, well, fourth grade, I think, is Washington State history. And so it's part of Washington State history. And then But I did it just as a read aloud. I didn't connect it with any social studies or writing or anything. It was just like, you know, you come in, you've got 15, 20 minutes after lunch or before lunch and you read to your kids. However, I always have discussions about it. And this book connects to so many different things. The kids would be like, oh, that's like what would happen in Weed Flower. Or that's about that so-and-so character from Weed Flower. So lots of connections just because there's so many themes in the book. But you could make it into a history lesson. Like, Oh, there's another really good book, Chains, that I read in fifth grade. It was a read aloud for history, for social studies, because it takes place in the American Revolution. That sounds amazing. I'm, I'm really excited to find a way to put that in my instruction. I'm always looking for good read alouds that are culturally responsive. Mm-hmm. We don't do Nancy Drew over here, okay? Thank you, Susie. That's dope. I definitely am going to hit you up to learn more about that book. I'll order a copy. Um, What's your last book? My last book is called Cultivating Genius, and it's Mm. by Goldie Muhammad. A lot of people have been talking about this book because it is really, really powerful. It is a book that helps educators understand 
how to develop a culturally and historically responsive framework, because we know that the current framework for instruction is not culturally responsive and it's very individualistic as opposed to um, what many of us come from, which is a collectivist culture. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we think about including black and brown students, creating these environments where they're working alone and they're not able to engage in dialogue and, and really reflect and process, it makes it very difficult for a lot of students of color to learn really. Yeah. And she's suggesting, uh, based on this, this, this framework is actually based off of a model that was developed in the 19th century in many um, educated Black communities all over the country, where they found ways to communicate with each other and keep each other abreast of what's happening in math and science and, and all of these other huge developments. Um, and it was through writing, it was through reading and writing, it was through debate, what's going on in the community. And when what we know about students is that when we make content meaningful and when we, we help them sink their teeth into something that is connected to their real world, they're much more motivated to engage with the content. We talk about that all the time. And so her book really discusses the need to provide a purpose for literacy that also allows us to build community because building community should always be at the center of what we're doing as educators. I would also say it creates an environment, the suggestions that she makes in the book creates, the suggestions that she makes in the book would allow for an academic community that has several entry points so that it's naturally self-differentiating. We're engaging in discussion. We are creating and writing our own content to share with other communities and to document our thinking about certain topics that are new to us. And the students who can produce more do. The students that want to do more research will. The students that still need an opportunity to like explore the content and, and just listen to the dialogue are there for the conversation as well. And so taking out this really narrow idea and structure of what it looks like to learn, right? Like stand and deliver, no discussion, no collaboration, no research, and, and, and putting back in so many of these really rich opportunities for learning that motivates students in a way that puts the cognitive load on them and, and gives them ownership of the content that they're learning about, um, I think is really the goal that all of us want. And, and so I'm really, really, I've been moved by this book. Obviously, with all of the COVID restrictions, I have not had the opportunity to implement in the way that I would like to, but it is something that I absolutely am working towards. And in many small ways, I have already begun, particularly with the dialogue and the debate and, and doing research on topics that are of importance to us. Awesome. I read that book too, and it was a textbook in a class that I taught in the fall. And one of the things that I really liked about the book, well, a couple things. One, it talks a lot about integrated teaching. So like whatever topic you're doing, you're doing it in math, science, social studies, you're doing it across the board. And also this idea about once you learn something, you have a responsibility to your community to share that knowledge. So everybody has that knowledge and how that like 
presentation and giving and sharing knowledge is powerful, that you are the expert and you're going to tell somebody what you know so they can know it too. And I think that's what I like so much about this is that by giving students an opportunity to take ownership of the work that they're doing, they're motivated to share with their community anyway. It happens organically. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily this separate thing where it's like, now let me teach you how to show the world what you know. It's like, mm-hmm. well, I'm so excited about what I know and what I've worked hard to learn. I can't wait to tell everyone I know in my community about this awesome information. Mm-hmm. So yeah, go check out Cultivating Genius. And I want to add on one bonus book because when you were talking about your book, it made me think about a book I'm just going to mention real quick. Just drop it. It's called Kind of Like Brothers by Co Booth. It is a uh, kind of a preteen, pre-adolescent book about a young boy named Jarrett who has asthma. His mother is a foster parent. They take in two kids, one a baby and another one that's a boy that's just a little older than Jarrett and this older boy is like just a little faster just a little cooler just a little uh, more attractive and so he gets all this attention and and Jarrett has a really hard time coping with it Jarrett also has a huge crush on a girl who he is a little concerned about he's concerned that she's going to like this other guy Jarrett is also failing school because of his asthma problems. He's missed a lot of school. So there are so many, so many narratives happening in this story. And it's really powerful because it's really important for kids to see the depth of a character that is their age. This is someone that has a crush, someone that's worried about school, someone that doesn't agree with his mother's decisions, someone that can't stand the kid that's living in his room and no one's asking how he feels about all of these changes happening in his life. And that's totally relatable. So check out Kind of Like Brothers by Co Booth. Unfortunately, our dear friend Susie has been kicked out of the room. I don't know what happened. Maybe it was her connection, but... Um, that's it for our episode. We hope that by sharing some of these books with you, um, you have an opportunity to think about content that might be powerful to bring into your classroom or to bring into your practice and share with other educators that are interested in making progress and, and growing. And I hope that everybody listening out there stays COVID free. Ciao.